This was a stitch-up from start to end. The citizens of Mauritius, many of them know how the police operate, by instinct, gut feeling, and there are obviously issues with corruption. This was a classic distillation of ineptitude, corruption, threats, and just an unprofessional and rushed investigation, desperate to protect the tourist image of Mauritius rather than necessarily get to the truth. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. The murder of bride Michaela Macarivi 10 years ago on the honeymoon island of Mauritius is one of the most high-profile unsolved cases across the world. But still, Mauritian authorities have failed to bring her killer or killers to justice. And after botching the original investigation and a shambolic court case that saw the acquittal of two men, what can the government do now that they have vowed to look at the murder files again? Today, I'm joined by investigative journalist Donald McIntyre to discuss murder in paradise and our own journey to Mauritius, which uncovered the grinding poverty that lies at the heart of this most tragic death, the failings of the original inquiry and the opportunities for ever solving this case. This is Crime World Extra, a podcast from sundayworld.com. It's hard to imagine that um, it's 10 years since Michaela Macarivi was murdered in Mauritius and they still haven't managed to get anywhere with the investigation. Like it was just so messed up from the beginning, wasn't it? Well, well I, I think it's entirely predictable. It's not hard to imagine at all. I mean, this is the case where uh, within uh, hours of the arrest or days of the, uh, of the murder, the chief uh, of police in Mauritius said that we have a 100% success rate for murders and convictions in, 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 uh, in murder trials in, in, in Mauritius. And, you know, some might, might think that was, as he did, a mark of congratulations. But for anybody, any experienced investigators or indeed people who are concerned about democracy and, and police services in democracies or versions of democracy, you think that's a real problem. Right, because you know, a hundred percent success rate tells you that it actually, uh, you know, it is uh, really a very unsatisfactory, and so it proved, and so it proved, and by accident, um, and by just by uh, uh, by accident, you know, five suspects were released. In particular, one suspect who was on the phone to his sister in in, in London, I think, at the time, and uh, and it was, you know, um, his innocent was proved. This was a stitch up from start to end i mean and and it was no different really to lots of i mean uh, the citizens of Mauritius, many of them know how the police operate you know by instinct gut feeling and often um and there are obviously issues with with corruption and ineptitude and um this was a classic distillation of ineptitude corruption um threats and uh, and just an unprofessional uh, and and rushed investigation, desperate mm-hmm. to protect the the tourist uh, image of Mauritius rather than necessarily get to the truth. Most definitely. So we travelled out to Mauritius uh, some years after the murder in order to do our our own investigation for the Sunday World at the time, and we stayed at that hotel. 
we had access to room 1025 where Michaela was murdered. And we saw, I suppose, the opportunities that were there in the 48 hours after her murder to catch uh, those who'd killed her. And we saw the mistakes that were made firsthand. So we'll go through a little bit of that maybe. Um, so Michaela was had been married 12 days previous in, in Ireland. Herself and John had gone first to Dubai and they had landed out in the Legends Hotel two days before this awful tragedy happened. Um, they had had lunch at the Banyan restaurant, which wasn't so far from their room. She'd got up from the table, walked back to the room in order to to collect a packet of biscuits she liked to have with tea after lunch. And when she didn't come back 15 minutes later at 3 p.m., John got up from the table, went to try and get access to the room, forgot his key and went up to reception where he was uh, he was accompanied by a bellboy back to the room and let in. So it all happened in a very small place, a very enclosed place. Um, describe the hotel because we were there, of course. Uh, and this was a luxury destination, fantastic hotel, multiple dining experiences, you know, very much the colonial treatment, fantastic service, dedicated. Mauritians are incredibly friendly and kind and, and really well run. Obviously, it was a French ownership like old ex-colonial uh, uh, experience. And uh, so it was the height of luxury, everything. And to be honest, everything that was promised in the brochures, you know, except, of course, murder. And But it was quite interesting. We had uh, a drink. We were watching there and we talked to the general manager and could sit there. And we could see it was a clear eyeline between, you know, the Banyan restaurant and the room. And, and we... Uh, you know, it was really quite eerie. Well, two things. Yes, this is a high-end resort. Uh, what wasn't advertised was that um, all the, uh, although there is restricted access to the property through gated security entrance, um, uh, that's fine. But surrounding this glorious and gorgeous resort is a wonderful beach, which which is, and all the beaches in Mauritius are owned and are public land and are accessed to the public. So the public, uh, young kids, young men, hawkers, they had full access to that. And and so so although rather that, than it being a protected, you know, practically security luxury destination, it was far from it. So people, the public and kids had access to it. And I remember we saw from the back end, we walked around and we filmed some footage and there was a group of, uh, of, of kids jumping, you know, teenagers, you know, from the beach onto the garden, the back uh, of, of um, Michaela's uh, apartment. And uh, we're thinking, oh my goodness, right? This is, you couldn't get a greater illustration of the, of the lack of security. So although the security was for me all for show, uh, but didn't act out in reality. The second thing is there were licensed hawkers on location. So although I don't think they had anything to do with it, nor any of the members of the public, the bottom line was this wasn't quite a secure location as everyone thought possible. The other thing was, which I think is relevant, is that uh, <clears throat> it's a hotel. All Each and every individual lock in the hotel rooms is registered, the timings in and timing out, timings out, to the a central control unit and computer in reception, but the problem there was uh, um, 
uh, not all locks were created equally. They all had a different time. So actually, so if you're in room 102 and it was three o'clock in room 103, it was 305 or it might have been 255. And so all of a sudden, you, they would just simply weren't calibrated. So what should have been a perfect crime scene for investigators actually proved to be incredibly chaotic and add that to the chaos and corruption and ineptitude of the local police force, then you had a, a quite a disaster. But I remember extraordinarily, we were there thinking, right, okay, well, what time did she actually enter the room? Well, you know, what, you know, and they didn't seem to recalibrate that and engage with that. But that seemed to me two, two uh, highlights for me in terms of the, uh, uh, the hotel and the investigation. Yeah, and when you mentioned there, obviously, the hotel room, we did consider that that was or what should have been a perfect crime scene, cleaned every day. You know who's gone in and out of it. And um, they should have had it cordoned off and forensically checked like to within an inch of its life because no doubt um, it would have given up its killers forensically, that hotel room. Now, there was a fingerprint found on the safe um, and there was investigations done into who had let themselves in and out of that room. But nonetheless, I think from the beginning, they didn't probably look after that crime scene the way it would have perhaps in another country. Well, I think the best, I mean, uh, I, you know, I, I think they were, I think, desperate uh, to solve the crime uh, quickly. Uh, they were distressed. It was a... Uh, uh, that the it was a local uh, uh, likely responsible, but initially uh, they put huge pressure on John. They treated John very very badly in the opening twenty four hours uh, of the investigation, and and uh, so I think it was a distraction. Um, but those in the know knew that uh, this was not uh, a murder. Uh, premeditated murder. This inevitably, as David Wilson told us, uh, the criminologist and Professor David Wilson and good friend of ours, uh, that this was a, um, a case of a crime um, uh, before a crime. So inevitably the crime, the, the, the organized crime was uh, theft and then something panicked and it ended up being a dis transformed, a small petty thief was transformed into a panicked and disorganized killer, as, uh, as as David Wilson says, you know. So, uh, you know, if you're going to paint the picture, this is the event where Michaela returns to the uh, up, um, the, the room, and the construction of the room would indicate that she, the the the, the killer or initial thief, would, could easily have hidden in a little alcove near with the bathroom. Remember, we were there, and we it was easily hidden, and then and then, so they were surprised. Obviously, they were halfway through the theft, so they couldn't disguise themselves as, you know, cleaners or whatever. And um, the uh, thief panicked and uh, and then killed uh, Michaela. Yeah, it certainly doesn't seem to have been a fully premeditated thing, or you know, nor was the nor was this a crime of passion or any of those things. Her her body was simply left as it was found in the bath. The um. The idea that there was a theft ring in that hotel was something that um, we began to understand because we went out of the hotel. A lot of people who visit Legends and, and other resorts in Mauritius simply stay within those resorts. 
they get everything their heart desires. They're fed, watered, as you say, there's loads of different dining experiences, beautiful sea to swim in and luxury rooms and all this. Um, whereas we went out the front gate and we went down the road and we we looked around and we went down to the, the capital. And it was so incredibly impoverished. Would you remember we went around, we actually visited some of the homes of uh, some of the original suspects in the case mm-hmm. and we spoke to some of them. Mm-hmm. And it really was, I mean, people don't understand or realise just how poor Mauritius is. Mm. Yeah, and I, I, I think, um, you know, it has its glossy, gorgeous side, but it is, you know, it is a, a, a pretty poor country. The people are lovely and friendly. You know, uh, the, uh, the industry is still increased. Uh, Based upon those traditional industries, I think there's there's a rum industry, there's um, uh, sugar cane, um, and but you can't imagine that the lifestyles have changed. You know, I mean, electricity was was there in most houses, and television, and of course, mobile phones. But um, yeah, there was poverty, and um, I think it certainly is a country on the way up. Uh, and which is one of the reasons why it's on the way up and heavily tourist dominated and so much for the tourist, if it's also safe. And, it, you know, this was an unusual crime. Let's just get this out there, right? I mean, tourists are by and large pretty safe there. They have a very safe and wonderful and amazing experiences and all of this stuff. But, uh, and I think this was an, an absolutely an outlier. But um, uh, we traveled out there. And of course, we traveled to one of the key suspects. And uh, it was it was extraordinary. I mean, literally, what we had, everything we had, you know, um, they desired. I mean, it was, I mean, people struggled really, really badly, didn't they? And, you know, um, I, can't, I don't know what the wages were in the hotel, but, you know, when you have, and I've seen this uh, in the Caribbean, when you have tourists who are arriving there with, you know, fantastical wealth, you know, ordinary tourists, but compared to the, uh, the locals who are working in the hotel, then, you know, that disparity is going to cause, you know, is going to, you know, predictably and inevitably result in thefts and a th- potential theft ring, inevitably, of course. And um, uh, all these things have to be organized and, and managed um, uh, in order to be more effective and sustaining. And you'd imagine that um, uh, the management of the hotel would have been dealing with these residual white noise of thefts in the background and that's what they kind of do and they manage it and this was the worst PR but we went yeah we went out and uh, I know we went to one house we were sitting down talking and while we were talking to one particular person you know we could see (laughs) our our belongings disappearing like it's like and and of course you're there as their guest at the same time you're watching your, you know, your purse, I think, was being stolen. Some camera kit was being stolen. And it was like, I okay. I think I had everything in the one bag, which didn't help matters, including the passports and all the rest of it. But it was being slowly moved away from me as we were conducting the interview. But uh, no, I think, the, 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 but, but, you know, there was no, yeah, I think we were, there were problems with uh, people had health issues, you know. um. Do you know what I kind of think it probably opened our eyes to the fact that this was no high-end theft ring if one existed in the hotel. This was people who were, you know, having access to a few coins left on the the dresser. Mm. And I think when you're on holidays, um, you're probably just not as conscious. You're dealing in a different currency. You're not really as conscious what you're leaving around, Mm. 
what yeah. you've left. You might have a couple of different currencies. Mm. You know, you're going around in, in swimming togs and you don't necessarily bring a handbag with you to the beach. So there probably were opportunities for small, petty theft. And given what we saw, there's no question, but I'm sure the hotel was paying the standard wage in the country, but there was no signs of wealth in any of the homes um, of these suspects. There was no question that if they were involved in a theft ring, they were probably just getting a few bob to buy, you know, food. Or or one of them, I think, in particular was, there was a suggestion, I think, that he, he was visiting the casino. Okay. I know. Well, I mean, you'd imagine, uh, I mean, like uh, Ireland in the 60s and 50s is that emigrants' remittances is a huge, you know, uh, financial um, uh, buttress for the economy. You know, people are sending funds back. They're working in London abroad and they're supporting their family from abroad. So, yeah, we get it. It wasn't organized uh, theft ring. It was, insofar as it was organized, it was, you know, it was a disorganized theft ring. This was a disorganized murder. Uh, Inevitably, all the evidence points to somebody was caught in the act of theft and must have been. uh, And what was interesting about where the fingerprint was, obviously, you know, there are lots of things you can do uh, as a cleaner, you know, uh, which will exonerate you. But if you're halfway through an open safe, there's not much defense you can i was cleaning the safe for you yeah cleaning it out but you can say you can be pretty much in every drawer in every orifice of a hotel room except the safe and when a, a fingerprint um belonging to one of the suspects who was later released was found on on the uh, uh on on the safe then that uh, for us i think you know uh, is is a huge concern of course you know the management of the crime scene. Then afterwards, when that particular suspect, you know, was uh, was back in there helping John uh, w- w- retrieve the body and all of this. Then, of course, they had a, a exculpatory evidence. Well, of course, my fingerprint was there because I was there. You know, and so that is that is a you know, and that is a uh, legitimate you know d- uh, defense. But um, from from our purposes, it was hard to imagine. It would kind of be a, an awkward. It's a possible, but it would be a rather awkward uh, engagement with the safe because it was out of, you know, kind of the perimeter of the body. And you just, it would be, again, it didn't seem natural. But again, um, that was a, a legitimate defense. But I don't think for one second, for one second, there will be an effective uh, um, investigation of this. And the reason is to do this, you've got to unpick, right, all the people who dragged in and who prosecuted the first. Uh, the first uh, five su- the first suspects, right, and particularly the the two ones they they accused of committing the murder, and uh, and all the evidence and all the testimony and the certainty they drove with that, and the highest ranks of of the Mauritian police force supported that, protected that, and backed that within an inch of their lives, and to give the Mauritius Mauritian justice system its credit. It exonerated, and honestly, uh, more than the Irish system or the British system over here, and certainly the American system, is they got their exoneration a lot quicker than you would even you would get uh, certainly in the UK. Just the appeals process travels so much more slowly. But I think what was interesting is that the focus, the reason why they got exonerated and freed, was the focus of the foreign press on this, saying, "Listen, we don't. This smells. This is preposterous." You know, and eventually they got they got released. But the judge, in in giving direction to the jury, actually told them not to worry about the perception of Mauritius as a tourist as a tourist destination when they were 
coming to their conclusion. Mm. I actually think the judge on the case, in fairness to him from what was presented, uh, did the right thing. And it mightn't have been the right thing financially for the island. Mm. And it mightn't have felt the right thing for the family. Mm. And, you know, Mickey Hart and John McAreevy, I mean, of course the family want justice and they want to see somebody mm. punished for that horrendous, horrendous crime. But I think it's important to get the right people. Well, it was interesting when we, the, on, the just, on the justice system, we managed, we wandered into the Supreme Court and the back office of the Supreme Court. And it was Friday afternoon and, and they were drinking rum was on the desk. This was, you know, hangout Friday. And we were looking and we got access to, uh, I think it was the, the financial claim by uh, Mickey Hart and the family for damages against the hotel. And we'd just been lodged that week and we'd been tipped off by local journalists. But to go in, we found ourselves literally in the bowels of just at the heart of it, right? And <laughs> the only thing which set us apart uh, as journalists was the fact that we didn't have a bottle of rum on our side, on our desk. But it was really quite surreal. But, you know, I, I get the fact that I am pleased that the justice system, the judges, that, that end works, even if the, mm. the front end of policing clearly had failed. Mm-hmm. Now, just moving it along to these requests constantly, totally understandable by the family to relaunch this investigation, et cetera, et cetera. I think in 2014, a new investigation team was set up. Um, 350 DNA samples were sent to a lab in France. They would have unpicked the um, what happened in the 48 hours after the murder, the fact that they hadn't locked down that hotel properly. They didn't interview all the guests. Some of them had been allowed return to their homelands without giving statements, et cetera, et cetera. In 2014, that team decided that there was no significant new evidence in the case. In 2016, again, the murder case was reviewed by the DPP and it was decided there was no grounds to, pr- to proceed with uh, any more prosecutions. Only last year, the police closed the case. And now this week, um, the Mauritian government have agreed to have another go at it. Mm. So where can they go or can they just use classic cold case techniques to give it another go? I think you and I, Donald, always said that the answers to that case really did lie in the original files and probably mm. within that original work, even though it was skewed to get it into court quickly. Mm and get the whole thing over and done with. But probably mm. within that original investigation is the answer to who killed Michaela. Well, I, I think you're right, but I think the damage is done. You know, to unpick and undo that, and I think inevitably, <clears throat> uh, inevitably the, 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 the Mauritian government, Justice Department, back of pressure from the Irish government, the family, will s- constantly say, it doesn't cost them anything to revisit it, right? What would be particularly damaging to them is that there are people now who have been promoted since then, and there were senior people who've been promoted even higher, who were at the heart of the first investigation, and then their their work is tainted. And they're at the risk of exposure and say, well, you know, because anybody, any suspect who's brought up will will revisit and, and require uh, 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 deep drilling into the original investigation, which will be deep drilling into the incompetence, maybe corruption, because there was allegations of physical assault and intimidation, you know, and, and so in the end, the fruits of the poison tree, you know, if it's damaged from the outset, I don't see how it can be, uh, this can be, um, without a confession or another witness, 
I just can't see how uh, this can be reignited. I think I can see how procedurally it will benefit the Mauritian government. Uh, they'll be seen to do something, but I cannot see it move on. I mean, as much as I would, listen, you know, we all want this to be moved on, but the reality is it won't be. And I think we'll be here in 10 years' time and it will still remain the unsolved. I'm not too sure that it's, you know, that I, I act, I'm with you. I think the, 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 the answer is in the original investigation, flawed and all as it is, right? Um, but by trying to skew two innocent people uh, into, uh, as the, as the murderers, when that failed, really, you know, uh, y you've lost it. So they had, they, they had one go at it. And I think because uh, of the personnel involved and the seniority of the people involved, and then they will have to admit huge, there'd be huge admissions of failure and personal incompetence and possibly corruption. Um, to allow a new investigation to gain proper traction. Unfortunately, I, I, I agree with you on it. It is, it, is, um, it is another long and hard road for um, John McAreevy and the Hart families and uh, our sympathies with them. Thank you very much, Donald McIntyre. Pleasure. From sundayworld.com, this is Crime World, produced by Ian Mullaney. Available online and on all podcast platforms. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. And if you want to get in touch, check out our Facebook page, Crime World with Nicola Talent. <laughs>